Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I don't exactly know why Bible translators continue to call this the triumphal entry when it is anything but. And we're going to look today at what a triumph was in Greco-Roman times and, you know, the things that happened. We'll be looking at the triumphant entry of Simon Tassi into Jerusalem after the expulsion of the Seleucid Greeks and various other accounts of triumphs and show how not only was Yeshua not being honored, he was actually being seriously snubbed and rejected. And like last week's episode, allergies are in full swing, so please forgive <laughs> forgive the sniffling. I know it's gross. Hi, I am Tyler Dawn Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Now, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, the ESV, but, you know, you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, and sorry for the sniffing again. Now, last week we um we actually talked about the one of the um meta narratives of 
the Gospels, which is Yeshua being greater than. Greater than Moses, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than Abraham, greater than David, um, greater than the temple. And this is the beginning of the unfolding of that story where Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, um, is going to start replacing the temple. And um, he's going to start challenging. He's going to start challenging the authority, challenging the rulers over the temple, all that. So oh, without further ado, let's get into um, this week's account because there's some stuff that's easy to mix, miss, mix. We have many historical accounts of what is called a triumph, which boil down to a military parade led by a conquering military hero into a city where he was dressed in fancy garb and, in the case of the Romans, crowned with a laurel wreath, met and honored at the city gates by the high officials, heralded, heralded with great gladness by the citizens of the city, and all this would end at the main city temple where the victor would celebrate with sacrifices. Oh, I know. You know what? If you've ever seen the movie Patton and you watch Patton come into... um Free and occupied city from the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> Patton knew how to do a triumph, okay? He he knew, and he actually studied that stuff, so he knew. Um, now, some details can be different, but, you know, you get the general drift of all the things that would go on. What we are going to see today is sort of an anti-triumph, which is appropriate because Yeshua is very much an anti-military leader. He doesn't come into Jerusalem on a beautiful white horse like Alexander the Great, or by a four-horse-drawn chariot like a Caesar, or even on a mule like David or Solomon. And if you've never seen a mule, they are a sterile cross between a horse and a donkey. So oftentimes bigger than a donkey, and some are gorgeously majestic. Check out the, um, the mules that the Amish breed. Oh my gosh, beautiful. Um, Yeshua not only comes on a lowly donkey, but on the cult of a donkey. And he isn't leading a train of captives and booty that the world would recognize because he has been kicking demons to the curb. And undoubtedly, some of the people following him that day were those whom he had delivered. Now, the city leaders won't be there to do anything except criticize. And, and Mark doesn't show them present at all. But the other gospel writers record their words, all right? And he's going to go up to the temple and will not offer a sacrifice or even say one word. So I call this an untriumphal triumph. Just one more indicator that Yeshua is everything the first century Jewish people were not expecting in a king. And yet all the hints are there that he is just that. But it's a whole lot easier after the fact and, you know, with a narrator. So let's dive into the text and see how all this plays out. Starting chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And this will be day one as far as the temple controversies go. Okay. Day one in Jerusalem. We have now reached the end of the way discourse, you know, all the hodos, uh, that has, 
taken us from the end of chapter 8 through the beginning of chapter 11. They, um, they reached, they've reached their final destination. So from this point on, Yeshua will always be in conflict with all of the authority and leadership groups from this point on. That was redundant. In fact, he will even personally provoke the final showdown by repeatedly acting the part of prophet within and outside the temple grounds. There will be no more healing accounts either. I mentioned previously that the walk up to Jerusalem was just that, up. A six to seven hour walk, 15 miles on Roman roads with an elevation gain of 3,400 feet. It was your very rare person who didn't make that pilgrimage on foot too. So either Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Wait. Western slope. Sorry. <laughs> I think. I, I've got it in my mind. I'm going to have to check that. Or Bethpage, which is reportedly a district on the outskirts of Jerusalem, where they briefly stop. From Bethany, pilgrims would travel across the Kidron Valley to the northern gate of Jerusalem, leading them into Bethpage. And as usual, Yeshua sends two disciples. He always sends two. You know, we have this two witnesses theme all throughout his ministry. And as I've mentioned previously, sending two witnesses was standard operating procedure to lessen the chances that one witness will botch the message. It's why we see two witnesses in Revelation. And that isn't Elijah and Moses. That's representative of us as his messengers. Um, I ought to add that many scholars see this as the beginning of the passion narrative. Those who don't see it here say it begins in chapter 14, but I like to place it here because Jerusalem is the final piece of the puzzle and everything from this moment on is just gearing up to um, the crucifixion. Now, the Mount of Olives, of course, is famous in scripture and gets a lot of mentions in the Gospels, but it is also significant messianically in the Hebrew scriptures. Let's look at Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4, and Ezekiel 43, um, 2 through 5. Then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now we go to Ezekiel 43. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All right, now, verses like this, are why it's important to understand the geography, 
not only of Jerusalem, but the temple itself. The temple complex was laid out from east to west, and the temple itself was situated to the north side of what we call the uh, Temple Mount today, with the Holy of Holies over where the Dome of the Rock now sits. Um, I explained last week why this would be important to the builders. There was actually, and is, exposed bedrock in that place, and it was seen as an overlap between heaven and earth where the cosmic realm could be accessed. So the Hekal, the main building itself, was to the western side, and it opened up facing the east. So from the top of the Mount of Olives in the west, oh, in the east, sorry, jeez Louise, my, I'm thinking this in my head and I'm second guessing myself. One could look and see the courts of the temple, and it must have been an amazing sight to behold. I will be repeating this sort of information a lot as we go forward so that you know what we're dealing with as to location for the controversies. I am now really happy. I spent so many years studying this in depth with my temple teacher, Joseph Good. Now, the reason why this is important is because both Zechariah and Ezekiel are talking about the Mount of Olives. When Yahweh is pictured as standing on the Mount of Olives, it is splitting between his feet as he is facing the Temple Mount. The enemies of Israel are portrayed as having surrounded Jerusalem and he is facing them down. This is not a pretty picture. In Ezekiel, again, Yahweh is portrayed as coming from the east, toward and into the temple by the east gate, and so again coming from the Mount of Olives. And there used to be a bridge that span that valley. So now when you see the various references to Yeshua standing on the Mount of Olives and pronouncing judgment, this is all in the same vein and meant to be the words of Yahweh himself. Okay, back to the text. Chapter 11, verse 2. And said to them, this is said to the disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Okay, so two disciples said this to them. The village in front of them is probably Bethany, as I mentioned before. And there are debates as to how he knew that there was an unridden colt there. Because it doesn't say. Did he just know? That's obviously possible. Did the owner come out of the village to greet him and offer it to him? Again, possibility. Evidently, we are on a need-to-know basis, and Mark doesn't think we need to know. As usual. That man, seriously, right? <laughs> but the two are given instructions to untie it and bring it, which we will elaborate on after the next verse. Of course, we know the story. Yeshua is going to ride this unbroken colt into Jerusalem. Why is this important? Well, number one, have you ever ridden a donkey? They're, they are not known to be the most cooperative of critters. Two, have you ever attempted to ride an unbroken animal? Not pleasant. Not speaking from experience here, thank goodness. Uh, number three, the Torah has a lot to say about the sanctity of animals set aside for a holy purpose. 
look at Numbers 19, verse 2. This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, on on which a yoke has never come. This, of course, refers to the red heifer, which was burned to ashes according to an elaborate ritual, and those ashes were used during a week-long ritual to rid someone of corpse impurity. Deuteronomy 21, verse 3. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has not pulled a yoke. This refers to the atonement that needed to be made when a dead body was found out in the middle of nowhere to absolve each of the surrounding villages and cities of the murder. Um, 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Now, this is actually um, one of my favorite accounts in all the Bible. In archaeological context, it's even funnier than you would immediately assume. And I'm going to um, I'm going to attach the paper I wrote about this. It's really funny the whole thing with the um, sending the Philistines having to send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel after it's destroyed um, their fields and um, they've got tumors and, oh my gosh. But you know, even the pagans knew the importance of what an animal is dedicated for. There are some animals that are set aside only for a holy purpose and it cannot be used for anything else. These animals never work and are never used for any personal benefit. Um, the red heifer, for example... Uh, isn't milked or bred and must be purpose uh, perfect. Of course, if it's not bred, you can't milk it. So that was kind of redundant. For the atonement uh, over manslaughter case, the heifer doesn't have to be pristine, but it can't have been used for labor. You know, effectively keeping them from sacrificing an old used up animal instead of one that was set aside specifically. In the case of Philistines, to milk cows with calves, they don't know how to pull together with a yoke, um, which is a learned skill. And they have to be separated from their calves for them to pull the cart in the right direction properly together and leave their calves would be a miracle. A sure sign that God was directing their actions. Now, in similar fashion, if Yeshua can easily ride an unbroken colt, it's another sign that he's the Messiah, God's son. It would take a miracle, and neither you nor I could do it, even with a colt we had raised from birth. I also want to add a tidbit here from Mishnah Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 2, Mishnah 15. One may not ride on a king's horse. And one may not sit on his throne, and one may not use his scepter, and one may not see him when he is having his hair cut, nor when he is naked, nor when he is in the bathhouse, as it is stated, you shall set a king over you. Deuteronomy 17, 15, meaning ensure that his fear should be upon you. 
all of these actions would lessen one's fear and reverence for the king. Which, okay, makes Haman's request in Esther for that honor for himself all the more stunning. Well, and it's also funny, because that story is just so funny. Um, so, verse 3. If anyone says to you, um, why are you doing this? <laughs> Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Um, the word trans translated as Lord here, it's the generic Kyrios. All right, um... So they could either be instructing the people, um, questioning them that the cult's master has need of it or that Yeshua has need of it. Again, doesn't matter. Just interesting. And Yeshua won't be keeping the cult as soon as he is done with it, it will be immediately returned. If those questioning them are the servants or friends of the owner, good friends and servants, I might add, then they may know that the owner went to greet this exciting prophet from Galilee. Otherwise, this is a straight-up act of God. Um, verses 4 and 5. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Um, what are you doing? Untying the colt. The um isn't actually in the Bible. This is the TDR version. Uh <laughs> And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Um, just a rehashing of what was said, new, new information here. Um, oh, and about the word cult. It's generic. A translation of polos, which simply means young animal. We only know this is a donkey because of Matthew 21 and John 12, which describe its mother as an onos, or donkey, and an onarion, young donkey, respectively. Okay, so without John's witness, this could have possibly been a mule, which can also have a donkey for a mother. Obviously. Okay. So, uh, verse 7, uh, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So, excuse me with all the sniffing. <laughs> so the two disciples return with the unbroken donkey, and they put their own cloaks on its back. Now, remember, they have all heard the three death predictions. In, um, that we find in, in, at the end of Mark chapter 8, another one in chapter 9, and another one in chapter 10. Um, but if Yeshua is planning on riding into Jerusalem, then something, you know, something that wasn't, it just wasn't done by pilgrims and, and therefore had to be seen as some sort of statement. And I think they saw some hope there and maybe a chance uh, to change Yeshua's mind. This is all me, by the way. You know, this is not supported in the text. This is me just saying, you know, this is what I suspect, given their track record. Um, in any event, um, I think they were eager about this is he sits himself on this cult 
and it doesn't even protest. I mean, it would have to be really puzzling. Now, perhaps this is a sign that things are going to be better than their worst fears, which is really all they've had up until this point. You know, maybe if they whipped up the crowds into enough of a frenzy, they wouldn't allow Yeshua to be killed by the leadership. Maybe the leadership would accept him and not turn him over to the Gentiles as Yeshua predicted. After all, if they could get enough people on his side, no one would dare touch him. I mean, what would happen? He would ultimately, you know, would he be ultimately accepted or rejected? Could they change his fate? I mean, this is the only time Yeshua is ever portrayed as doing anything other than walking or riding in a boat. You know, something was up. I'll be back in just a few minutes. and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week, we are talking about the decidedly untriumphal, triumphal entry um, at the beginning of Mark chapter 11. And we've already talked about what a Roman triumph was and how Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem met like the basic minimum of some requirements, but really... He was snubbed, okay? He was snubbed. Although the uh, disciples, I believe, had everybody whipped up into a frenzy and they were excited. All the people who should be paying homage to their king were decidedly absent in Mark's gospel. And in the other gospels, they were actually um, insulting him. All right? So... um. He comes in, this is kind of a hopeful situation, and I'm thinking especially for the disciples, because, you know, maybe they can, maybe something, maybe a miracle will happen here, and he won't die, they'll just crown him king, everything will go swimmingly, um, but, you know, why would they even have any scriptural reason to be hopeful? You know, well, maybe they knew the verse, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, Rabbi, 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 Rabbi Eliezer, who lived shortly after Yeshua, had this to say in the commentary on Zechariah 8.10, um... When there are no wages for work and no rent paid for the use of one's animal, that is an indication that the um, Messiah is at hand. That the coming of the Messiah is at hand. Excuse me. As we see no rent paid for using someone else's donkey here, I find that really fascinating. We do not know what beliefs were in play during the first century or how widespread it was, but I do find it interesting that this made it into um, the Talmud. Yes, I think this was in the Talmud. Oh, I didn't, 
I didn't put a citation. Dang it. I will try and find it when I put in the transcript. I will hopefully remember. Anyway, one more. Uh, in Genesis 49, uh, verses 10 through 11, the deceptor shall not depart from Jerusalem, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. All right, and uh, so let's, let's I mean, ah, wow. <laughs> so uh, we're going to go back to chapter 11. Here's verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Uh, let's look real quick here at the um, triumph of the triumphal entry, uh, triumph of Simon Tassi when he entered Jerusalem after the expulsion of the Seleucid, the enemy forces, and the cleansing of the citadel. Uh, this is 1 Maccabees chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 51. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon indeed, or Simon decreed that very year that they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. He strengthened the fortifications of the Temple Hill alongside the citadel, and he and his men lived there. And that's from the New Revised Standard Version, which actually has the apocryphal books in it. Um, you know, this was a glorious day. You know, make no mistake. Um, talking, talking about the events, um, from 1st Maccabees. You know, their enemies had been cleared out of Jerusalem again, and Judea was independent, thanks in no small part to their treaty of mutual assistance with Rome, which is ironic considering the fact that Rome had to step in later to take the country from his great-grandsons who made a horrible mess of a civil war in the country by fighting one another for supremacy. Uh, everyone celebrating with singing and palm branches. Simon had just negotiated a great political victory after a string of military conquests. The human enemies were crushed and expelled. And this shouldn't be overlooked, all right? In chapter 14, they made Simon both priest, and prince, not king, prince, until such time as a, quote, trustworthy prophet should arise, unquote, to tell them what to do. Um, they did not make him king because they were dedicated to the restoration of David's throne, but made him prince as a stopgap measure in the meantime. And that actually worked for his generation and the next, which is uh, John Hyrcanus. Not so much after that, but we have a triumphal entry after a military victory, 
the praising, the waving of palm fronds. He was a priest, so there were undoubtedly sacrifices. And later he was honored by all the Judean leadership and given accolades and titles. That is what we will need to compare Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem to. And yes, I ended a sentence with a preposition. You can just deal with it. Okay, so many people wonder if they were suspecting that Yeshua might be that prophet they had been waiting for. Um, certainly making this prophetic announcement by riding into town, you know, in light of Zechariah 9.9, or even if the bulk of them didn't know it, this was an oddity. As the group came into town, there must have been whispers of the healing of the blind man and, and all his other works. We already know from earlier that the speculation about his identity was very widespread. Was he Elijah or John the Baptist come back to life? No one knew. Um, but they were throwing their cloaks on the road, a dusty road where there would either be fresh or trampled in manure, uh, even though they did keep the streets fairly clean. But this must have been fairly orderly because the Roman authorities didn't stop them or step in. That's very important. We're going to notice that time and again, the Roman authorities not stepping in. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So far, so good. We have another reference to those in the crowd who went before and those who came after. Uh, we saw that in 1032, they were described as amazed and afraid, respectively. They were all behind Yeshua, of course, at that point. Um, but now they are headed into Jerusalem and the excitement is building. And I know what it is to be thrown into the excitement involved when you become part of something. I actually protested at Berkeley once, went on a high school trip against apartheid, which I actually agree with now. But as a teenager, I didn't know what I was, you know, protesting. So, I, you know, I look back with zero regrets. <laughs> But like I said, I knew nothing about what they were protesting. But the atmosphere was just electric and infectious. Was this organic, what was happening here? Uh, or were the disciples stirring up the crowd? We know how ambitious they were, and they didn't really like Yeshua's plans. Um, so let's talk about Psalm 119 really quick. It's an important psalm. It's a military psalm. Um, the verse in question that is being chanted here is the Hallel. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And according to Mishnah Tractate Sukkah, chapter 3, ver uh, Mishnah's... Uh, Mishnayot, not Mishnas, three through four. This was sung at the Feast of Sukkot, or you might know it as Tabernacles, at the waving of the Lulav. And uh, let's read it here. And where in the recitation of Hallel would they wave the Lulav? They would do it at the verse, thank the Lord for he is good, 
Um, that appears both at the end of the, the beginning and the end of the psalm and the verse, please, Lord, please save us. We see it again in Pesachim 119a. And this is important to the larger context of Mark 11 and 12. Uh, Pesachim is the um, Talmudic tractate on Passover, Pesach. Um, uh, let's see. Returning to the issue of the Hillel, the Gemara states that these psalms include choruses in which each section is sung by a different person. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nahami, Nahmani said to Rabbi Yonatan, uh, said that David recited, I will give thanks to you for you have answered me, which is Psalms uh, uh, 118.21, with regard to the success of his reign. Yeshe recited the stone which the builders rejected have become the cornerstone, Psalms 118.22. The brothers of David recited, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's um, verse 23. Samuel the prophet recited, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's 24. The brothers of David recited, we beseech you, Lord, save now. That's verse 25. David recited, we beseech you, Lord, make us prosper now. That's also verse 25. David recited, we beseech you, Lord, make us prosper now. Again, verse 25. Yeshai recited, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, verse 26. Samuel recited, we bless you out of the house of the Lord, also verse 26, they all recited, the Lord is God and has given us light, verse 27, Samuel recited, order the festival procession with boughs even to the horns of the altar, that's verse 27, David recited, you are my God and I will give thanks to you, verse 28, they all recited, you are my God, I will exalt you. Um, so obviously we see Psalm 118 is heavily tied to the Passover, which is of course where we are right now. Um, actually, as I'm recording this, it's the week of unleavened bread, <laughs> but, um, Yeshua is in town for the Passover. We're not only going to see this plea for salvation in these chapters, but the cornerstone will also be popping up in a controversy with the leadership in chapter 12. As far as Hosanna is concerned, um, that is a plea for physical salvation and in 2 Samuel 14.4 and 2 Kings 6.26, we see that those cries are targeted at kings, namely at David through the woman from Tekoa and at King Jehoram by the woman of Samaria during a siege. But in saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are at least recognizing Yeshua as the agent of Yahweh, even though he is far more than that. And think, okay, just for a moment on how he entered the city versus how he will leave. All of these people, many of whom were likely blessed by his ministry, will forsake him and his disciples will be nowhere to be found. And people are fickle. Now, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Now... This little gem is another matter entirely. You can't find it in a psalm. In fact, you can't find it anywhere in Jewish literature. It's unique, and that's not all. It's nationalistic. It's a nationalistic slogan that is out of time and out of place. 
It's entirely political. And although Yeshua is political, he isn't political in that way. Just like he isn't particularly interested in prospering the old good old U.S. of A., he isn't interested in bringing David's kingdom back the way it was either. He's not interested in the glory days or in what the Jews of his day were longing for. It's too small, too xenophobic. Yeshua is aiming to be the king of the world, but not by military force. He is going to lead captivity captive. The uh, coming kingdom of our father David, as they imagined it, you know, a military reality where they ended up being on top again. It's a nice sounding idea if you're Jewish, but it allows the rest of the world to go to hell. Allows God to lose. Um, the prophets were dropping hints, you know, everywhere. You know, ones that the Qumran community, at the very least, like to edit out from their writings. If you remember, we talked about them doing that last week. Verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Ugh. It just ends and we're like, what the snot? He comes in, he's cheered on by the crowds, and he goes to the temple, looks around, just leaves. Like, what a total downer. <laughs> so what the heck? Remember, I told you that a conquering and victorious king would come into the city, be greeted by the leadership, didn't happen, be given gifts, didn't happen, would make a parade up to the temple where he would dismount and honor the gods with a sacrifice. Why didn't Yeshua follow the pattern and make a sacrifice? I mean, certainly he'd offered sacrifices before. You know, he kept the Torah commandments perfectly. He went to the feast and therefore offered his personal Hagigah and the Passover every year. He paid his temple tax and was therefore a participant in the community daily and festival sacrifices. So what happened? Why did he look around and why did he promptly leave for the two-mile trip back to Bethany? Well, the crowd seemed to have dispersed quickly. He wasn't teaching, as we will see him doing over the course of the next two recorded days. Like so many things over the course of his later ministry, I believe this boiled down to an acted-out prophecy. Let's look at Ezekiel 8 through 11. Um, in these chapters, an angel takes Ezekiel on what amounts to an inspection tour of the temple. They literally go and look around at everything. And while there, Ezekiel sees terrible abominations being committed by the leadership. This is followed up by an angel going throughout the city to put a mark on the forehead of every Jew who laments and cries out of anguish because of the abominations, you know, the faithful remnant. Everyone without this mark is subject to judgment. Then, in the next chapter, we see the glory of Yahweh leaving the temple, and the glory never returned to the second temple, even though Yahweh commanded Haggai to rebuild. And yet, Yahweh declared that the glory of the second temple would be greater than the first, which was a mystery until Yeshua walked in and made it greater. In chapter 11, the leadership is judged 
and the nation is condemned to be scattered amongst the nations, but Yahweh promises to regather them, remove their hearts of stone, give them a new spirit, and unify them. Um, give them one heart, okay? So what does this have to do with what we've already seen? Now, the second temple, like the first, has become full of abominable things. Sure, they don't have pagan altars and idols, but we will find them carrying the very coins they condemn as idolatrous because they bear Caesar's image. It's become a place rife with corruption and oppression and greed, which are every bit as abominable as idolatry. Those who have... um prospered under this system are now going to reject, repulse, and try to entrap Yeshua. In doing so, they will utterly reject and drive out Yahweh from amongst them. The spirit of Yahweh that used to reside in the tabernacle and the first temple is now in Yeshua, the greater tabernacle. You know, a tabernacle being a mobile temple. That's exactly that's that's what a temple was. Um, it's a uh, it's a mobile temple, and so really, you want to know which um, version of the temple most faithfully Yeshua would be is the tabernacle because it can move around. Now, they're going to not only behave in a treacherous manner toward him, but they will also conspire and collaborate with the Romans to kill him. As in Ezekiel, there will be a mark placed on those who lament and mourn over what has been done. Those who give Yeshua their allegiance after the resurrection. But this temple, like the last one, it will be under the ban and it will be utterly destroyed and the leadership judged and the people expelled from Jerusalem and ultimately from the land again and scattered throughout the nations. You know, returning only very recently, historically, almost 73 years ago and not in large numbers. And, you know, I mean, just a minuscule number of Jews have returned. Most prefer to live among the nations. It's safer. It's more comfortable there. It's cheaper to live in the nations. Not everywhere, but in a lot of places. So we see history repeating itself over and over again. The kingship and priests become corrupt. They lead people into rebellion against Yahweh. The temple then becomes corrupted. Jerusalem becomes filled with bloodshed. Yahweh sends his messengers and they reject and kill them. Yahweh sends judgment and scatters his people for his own name's sake. Yahweh remembers his people and relents. He makes a way for them to return. Most refuse and those who do return leave a lot to be desired and are soon corrupted again and worshiping him half-heartedly and oppressing one another and divorcing their wives. And again, Yahweh warns and waits and then sends judgment and the temple gets defiled and he allows them to recover from that. But within a generation, it starts all over again and the Romans come in 
because of all the infighting and evil, and then they kill the Messiah, God's final messenger, and the temple is destroyed, and they are expelled from Jerusalem. Same story again and again, not because they're Jews, but because they're human beings. Commandments are great if your heart is changed and can be terrible if your heart's wicked. All right. The first century was a time of unbelievable wickedness and oppression. They tried keeping the commandments on steroids, but they did it in such a way that they locked God entirely out of the process. So Yeshua comes through the city as king, as Lord, as, you know, the Lord of the covenant who, who they've been seeking. And he's rejected by the leadership. He moves on to the temple. He inspects it. And as we'll see early the next morning, he rejects it entirely. He isn't going in there to cleanse the temple and convert the temple administration. So when you hear um, it referred to as the cleansing of the temple, no, he didn't cleanse it. He didn't cleanse anything. He judged it. And I'll show you next week. He is going to condemn them for corruption. And it will be on that very ground that they will work to plot and arrange his death because they understood exactly what he did and what he was doing. And if they even knew who he was, they would have known that he was, he absolutely had the right and a good reason to do just that. But yes, you know, like I said, um, even a building commanded by God can become an idol. You know, we see time and time again in scripture, things commanded by God to become an idol. The, uh, the snake on the pole became an idol. Just, we're horrifying. Anyway, uh, next week we have the judgment of the temple, the clearing out of the temple. And uh, have a great week. I will see you then.